Well, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Keegan McQuaid. I am the youth director here at Compass Bible Church, Treasure Valley. I work with your middle school and high school students. They see me a lot more than you guys do on Wednesday nights. But I am so excited to be here with you this morning and take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to the Old Testament this morning. But one thing that many of you may not know about me is that growing up in my house, I had an English teacher as a father which made life very, very interesting. Both I had good because I always had somebody to grade my papers. I always would proofread them, but I always had my dad to fall back on and say, hey, dad, I really need an A in this. Could you proofread it and let me know what I need to fix? It was great having an English teacher there. But I also always had somebody to correct my grammar no matter what time of the day it was. So a mixed bag, but I was very thankful. And one thing that my dad would always tell me, because he loved to talk about the books he was teaching in class and the movies that he watched and the TV shows, he loved to talk about the story, the, scene, the themes to everything. And he would always tell me that every good story, every good book, narrative, movie, TV show, always has foreshadowing. Always has foreshadowing. It's a central theme to books, a central theme to narrative, a central theme to movies, that the author, the storyteller always hints at what's going on. And if you can pick up on it, then you can have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. And as I was growing up, as I was young and got married, my wife and I loved to watch the TV show, A Series of Unfortunate Events. It's on Netflix. It's a remake of a movie, which is a remake of a book series. And in this show, we follow a couple orphan children who are the Baudelaire's, and unfortunately for them, the title of the movie or the show or the book is a series of unfortunate events. And our narrator, Lemony Snicket, throughout the series, every episode, tells you as the audience, you may think that something good is finally going to happen to these Baudelaire children. You may hope that they're finally going to get to their goal to reach the end, that they're going to finally have a happy ending for once. But I promise you, audience... This is only a series of unfortunate events, and only bad things will happen to these children. And while watching this show, my wife and I, I would always hear that and would predict that, yeah, only bad things are going to happen. Very subtle foreshadowing, I know, but I was proud of myself for picking up on it. And my wife was always the hopeful one saying, you know what, I think it's finally going to turn out well for these children. I think this time they're going to get it. I think they're finally going to have something good happen to them. And I'll let you watch the show or read the books on your own to find out what happens. But typically, the end of every episode ends with the floor dropping out and bad things happening to them. But one thing that I noticed while watching this show, because I focused on the foreshadowing, because I focused on what the narrator told us at the start was going to happen at the end, I tend to forget to pay attention to what is actually happening in the characters' lives. I would look past their actions. I would look past what happens in the here and now because I would say, well, only bad things are going to happen. I know the end of this story. And I think a lot of time for Old Testament narrative and here for Second Samuel chapter 9 in general, we can tend to do this with good stories that we know, good narratives that we know, for example, about King David. Most of us grew up in Sunday school learning about what happened to King David, his highs, his lows, We know what's going on, and I think sometimes we tend to look past the here and now, what's happening in the text about our characters, our side characters, and we miss out on crucial things that we can learn from both King David and our other characters involved. 
And today, as we open up to 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there with me. 2 Samuel chapter 9, we see some very not-so-subtle foreshadowing happen in verse 1. We see what's going to happen at the end. We know what happens in this story. But, please, I beg of you, don't tune me out because we know what's going to happen. Let's focus on what happens to these characters. Even though we know that the ending is good, let's focus on what happens between the interactions here between King David and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, who is the grandson of King Saul. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 says, And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Here we see that David has said, I'm going to show kindness, I would like to show kindness to the line of Saul, to the son of Jonathan. Is there anybody in the land left that I can show this kindness to? Well, we know it's going to happen, so I'd like to thank you for coming. You know the end of the story. We can move on, right? No, obviously there's more that happens in this story. So there's one big question. Why in the world does King David want to show kindness to anybody that is of the line of Saul. I'm sure if you know anything about David, you know that David has had a couple trials throughout his life. One of those was fleeing from Saul because Saul tried to take his life multiple times. So it's confusing why David would want to say, yeah, you know that guy who tried to kill me multiple times? Is there anybody left of his line heritage that I can show kindness to? That's a little puzzling. Why in the world would David want to do that? Well, if we look back just one book, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 20, if you want to stick your finger in 2 Samuel 9 and turn with me to 1 Samuel, chapter 20, we're going to look at verse 12. 1 Samuel 20, starting off in verse 12. So in 1 Samuel 20, verse 12, we see an interaction between Jonathan who's the son of Saul and David, which gives us crucial importance and context to what happens in 2 Samuel 9. 1 Samuel 20, verse 12 says, And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more if I do not disclose to you and send away that you may go into safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off my steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Here the scene is set. We see that Saul obviously is trying to kill David. He's already tried to kill him once, and he's going to try to do it again. And David and Jonathan, who are best friends, like brothers, have a love for each other that we would say is a loyal love. It's the word has said, which means loyal, loving kindness. They have this loyal love for each other that they have decided 
Hey, David, I know that my father is trying to kill you, or he might again. I will let you know if you need to flee from here so your life can be protected. Jonathan does this because he loves David and he wants to protect him. And all he asks in return is that one day, if you get the chance, protect my line. And David agrees. If you protect me, I'll protect you. And we see it's because of this loyal love that is both in 1 Samuel 20, when the word love is used, this has said, and when kindness is used in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's the same loyal love, the same has said that's being used. It should show us that there's a connection between these two texts, obviously. That this same love that David had a long time ago for his best friend is what's driving him here years later now that he's in power. We need to recognize that David's actions in this chapter spread and come from the covenant that he has already set with Jonathan years before. The theological significance to this word being used, an author that I was reading this week put it as denoting the life-sustaining grace of God bestowed on humans and making it possible to have a loving relationship with him. If we look at this word, we should see that it points us to the grace and love of God. That God graciously loved his creation, loyally loved his creation, and it points us straight to his grace. For example, we see this word also used in Isaiah 54.10, which says, For the mountains may depart and hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And by covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This has said, this loyal love is the same love that God shows us through his amazing grace. It's the same love that David has for Jonathan and the same love that we're going to see in 2 Samuel 9. The reason why this text is happening. So as we continue, I think it's really important that we remember that loyal love because it has an Huge impact on what's going to happen next. So, 2 Samuel 9, continuing in verse 2, we see then what David does after he's already told us, I'm going to show kindness to this line of Saul. Verse 2 says, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to? Show the kindness of God to him. Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then the king sent David, and the, then King David sent and brought him forth from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. In this part of the text, we see that Ziba is the servant who is closely, most closely related, working with the line of Saul. And David, who has been looking for anybody who's from the line of Saul, asks him to find somebody who is of Saul's line so that he can show him kindness. But we learn something crucial about our other character in this story, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. We see that he is crippled. He's not able to flee. And we know that actually from earlier in this book, 2 Samuel 4, 4 tells us Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. 
And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. He and his name was Mephibosheth. We see that Mephibosheth is crippled. We see that he was dropped by his nurse and is not able to flee. He has people taking care of him and he's in hiding. Why is he in hiding, you may ask? Because he's fearing for his life. He's afraid. We see verse 6 tells us that Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered him saying, behold, I am your servant. I think it's crucial for us to stop here instead of looking towards the end of this narrative and see that David does show kindness and see, pause, that there's something going on in Mephibosheth's head. He doesn't think, oh great, I've been invited to the king's house. I've been invited to come before the king. What good gifts am I going to be given? That's not what's going through Mephibosheth's head. Mephibosheth has no idea that David is calling him to show him kindness. He's actually in fear for his life because he knows a couple things. First and foremost, as we've already stated, he is of the line of Saul. His grandfather has tried to kill King David multiple times. Which means, I don't know about you, but if I were in his position, I would think that we're probably not at good standing. That the guy who my grandfather tried to kill, probably not on the best grounds with him right now. We're probably not friends, maybe closer to enemies. Secondly, he knows that in the ancient Near East at this time, historically, what was common if somebody new took the throne it would be common for that king to say, is there anybody who is of the bloodline of this previous king? Is there anybody who could possibly try to come and take my throne? And if there is, he would either himself or send his army to go and exterminate that line because there's not a chance that any king at this time would risk losing money, power, land, or the throne. That was typical, and we may think that's barbaric, that's awful, how could anybody do this? But at that time, that was the social norm. That was what was going on in all of these kingdoms when power changed hands. So Mephibosheth knows this is what's happening in the culture all around me, and I've been just called to come and see the king. I'm probably in danger. My life might end if I go and see King David. But the final thing that we learn about Mephibosheth there is that he's crippled. He cannot run away. He cannot flee anymore. He has no chance, no choice, except for to go to King David. He can't flee. He can't run away. He's stuck and is relying on other people to bring him to the king. So he's forced to go possibly to his death, which is why he is fearing for his life. He's no place to hide, no place to flee. The king has called him and he must go. He's terrified, fearing for his life, which is why he comes before the king, bows on his knees, his face to the ground and says, behold, I am your servant. He places himself, his life before King David saying, whatever happens, happens. I have nowhere to go. Please let me be your servant. But this is where the story takes a turn for the better. Obviously, you know and I know that David doesn't kill Mephibosheth here. That would be 
a very sad ending to this story, and it would take a turn for the worse. But fortunately, that's not what happens. In verse 7, David turns this story on its head and shows kindness to Mephibosheth. Verse 7 says, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Here's where we see the story take a complete turn against the social norms. Instead of being killed because his grandfather was A, formally on the throne, and B, tried to kill the current king, instead of being taken out, his life lost, Mephibosheth is given back land, power, money, and is promised by King David that you will eat at my throne or you will eat at my table for the rest of your life. This is unheard of. Instead of losing his life, he's given all of these amazing things which he doesn't deserve. And this word kindness in verse 7 again is the same has said, the same loyal love being used here for Mephibosheth from David that was used for Jonathan and David. Here we see that the true loving kindness that David had for Jonathan is transferred to Mephibosheth. Not because of anything Mephibosheth had done, but in fact because of what David has already made as a covenant with Jonathan. Because Jonathan loved David and David loved Jonathan. And I think here it's important for us to stop and realize that we can learn something from David's perspective. We can learn something from King David, and it's not about ruling in your life. It's about what we see from the words that David uses. We learn from David that our example, that our word is binding, and that we have to be honorable in our speech. Point number one, you need to treat your word as binding. You need to treat your word as binding. Your word is binding and you have to do everything in your power to fulfill it. Take David, for example. He's the king. He could easily have said, you know what? Jonathan's dead. There's nobody to stop me from doing whatever I want. Nobody's going to question me. I'm the king. I'm in power. It would be easy for Jonathan at that, or for David at that time to say, you know what? I'm going to take Mephibosheth out. I don't want to risk losing any money. I like my money. I don't want to risk losing any land. I don't want to risk losing any power. And there's no way I'm risking losing the throne. Would have been easy for David to do. He's the king. And he's just bringing in some guy who's been hiding from him for years. Probably not very many people would have questioned it. But instead, because of his loving kindness for Mephibosheth, because of his loving kindness for Jonathan, He instead decides to protect Saul's line, protect Jonathan's son, and honors his covenant. Jonathan protecting David from Saul and David protecting Mephibosheth's line. We have to be like David in honoring our words with others. 
And you maybe say, okay, the youth director's coming up here telling us not to lie. We know that. Well, I think this is a little more than just that. Because, for example, as I was growing up, going to school in Louisville, Kentucky, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I had a professor who taught a youth pastor class, which has been very helpful for me as your youth director. And one day, as we were talking about counseling, he told me and the rest of our class, never use the fatal phrase, what you tell me stays between us. And you may be thinking, well, that builds some camaraderie between you and the person you're counseling, you and the student that you're counseling. But his point was, if that student then goes on to tell you that they're doing something that's illegal or immoral or something that their parents need to hear about immediately, you are going to have to make the decision, am I going to lie to this student and go and talk to their parents, go and talk to the needed authorities, or am I going to not say anything, which is not the choice? And by doing so, by choosing, okay, I'm going to talk to their parents, that breaks a relationship, that breaks a covenant, and it makes it extremely hard to minister to that student at all in the future. Your word is binding. I have to treat my word as binding in my job, but also, this isn't just a problem that your local youth director struggles with. In your life, you make commitments all the time. For example, I'm sure many of you have had your spouse say, hey, I'm going to Fred Meyer. If you could take out the trash before I get back, that would be very helpful. For me in my house right now, it's if you could change out the diaper genie before I get back, that would make it super, super helpful because our son is three months old and we have to change his diaper a lot. You then, with all the good intentions, say, yes, sweetie, I would love to do that. I would love to help you. But you get sidetracked or something comes up that takes your focus away from the chore that you've been asked to do, and instead you go do something else. Your spouse comes back, the thing's not done. You have, in fact, broken your word, broken your covenant with that person. And while this may seem silly, something small like taking out the trash, something small like taking out the diaper genie, if you aren't able to follow through on the small things that require little sacrifice or little inconvenience, then those trivial things are going to snowball into bigger things which might cause you to lose something, which might cause you to give up a convenience, which might cause you to sacrifice something. For example, committing to discipling and raising up your children. It sounded great a couple weeks ago when we heard Pastor Charlie talk to us in the men's event saying that your time is valuable, that what you do with your time is crucial, that you need to take control of the time you have. You need to take control, men, as leading up your family, being that godly model for them, for your wife, for your kids. And it sounded great to hear that. But he then focused on how much time we spend doing other things. And many of us realized we might not be spending our time doing the things that we've committed to do. Instead, we're off in our own world doing other things. For you, it might be saying, you know what? It sounds good to commit to want to raise my children in the way that they should go. To be that model for them. Saying, I want my son and daughter to wake up every morning and see me in the word. Those are good things to commit to. But then when life happens and rubber hits the road, if you aren't treating your word as binding in the small things, it's going to be very, very hard 
to treat your word as binding when you have to sacrifice things in order to do that. Whether it's committing to waking up early to be in the word so you can set that example or following through and disciplining your kid when life's not easy and things are hard. If we don't follow through and treat our word as binding in the small things, Compass Bible Church, we are going to find it's much harder to do that on things that require sacrifice. We should strive to show this same said, the same loyal love that the Lord had for David and David had for Jonathan and David displayed for Mephibosheth. And we need to recognize that we are only able to do that, to love like that, because God first loved us that way. That David set this example, risked losing power, risked losing land, risked losing wealth, all to somebody whose grandfather tried to kill him multiple times, all because he made a commitment to his friend, to Jonathan, to protect his life, and he was going to protect David's, saying, you love me and have committed to save my life. I love you, and I'm committed to protect your line. This has said love is amazing to see. But David's interaction isn't the only one that we should focus on in this text. And as we're reading this, I'm sure that you've probably picked up on some subtle hints that there is somebody else in the world, somebody else who loves you very much, who has a loyal love like this, this is, that is much better than anything any finite, sinful man can ever display. I think it's important for us to recognize how in the grand scheme of things, our gospel focus of this text is that we are not David of this story. We are not the David of this story sitting on the throne. In fact, we are more like Mephibosheth. I'm sure many of you have heard, seen, watched sermons on TV where you've seen the pastor come up, whether it's on Facebook or on your television, come up and say that you need to be more like David. You need to slay the giants that are in your life. Well, I'm here to tell you, Compass Bible Church, that most of the time, you're not David. You're not sitting on the throne. You don't get to decide who lives, who dies. You're not conquering kingdoms. Most of the time, you are not David. And in this story as well, you are not David. That doesn't mean that we can't learn from his actions. That doesn't mean that we can't take away this important truth that our word is binding. But I don't want you to be sitting there while reading this text thinking that you're the king that gets to decide whose life you're sparing and whose life you're taking away. No, you and I, in fact, are more like Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, being the person who is of the line of Saul, because of that, is an enemy to David. Mephibosheth, being crippled, unable to flee from his demise, unable to flee from the pending judgment that's coming. And you and I are exactly like that. We're not from the line of Saul, but we are from the line of man, which means that we incoherently are sinful. That our sin has caused a separation between us and God, and we fall very short of his bar of perfection. And is that sin, just like Mephibosheth couldn't flee, it is that sin that causes us to be unable to flee from that final judgment day that's coming for all of us. And in this text, David is like the Lord. David showing loving kindness to somebody who doesn't necessarily deserve it, that did nothing to earn it. David spares Mephibosheth, gives him back land, and allows him to eat at his table. David is like the Lord because the Lord shows us loving kindness by sparing us from his wrath, not because of anything that we've done, but because he sent his perfect son who 
was not his enemy, the only perfect man to walk this earth, sent him to die on the cross and be raised three days later so that you and I could receive that good gift. One author that I was reading this week when talking about Mephibosheth getting to eat at the table said that this is a picture of Christ letting us eat at the table even though we are his enemy because of our sin. This text puts on display God's grace perfectly. It points us to the good news of God's grace and tells us that we too have that option to sit at the king's table. We too have that option to instead of incur that wrath and judgment that is coming for us because we are sinful and separated from God, by turning from our sins and trusting in Christ, can have that same grace today. We too can sit at the king's table. This text should invoke in us an excitement and gratefulness for eternity. When considering Mephibosheth's text, realizing that you and I are the enemy of God, who can't flee because of our sin, yet God graciously sent somebody to pay that price for us. We need to realize from Mephibosheth's perspective here that point number two, that you need to be grateful and excited for eternity. You need to be grateful and excited for eternity. First off, you need to be grateful when thinking of God's gracious gift of eternal life that he has bestowed on you because Mephibosheth, like we've said, did nothing to deserve the great gifts that David lavished upon him. But rather, it was because of somebody else, Jonathan, that did something that made that loyal love possible and those amazing gifts possible. You and I have done nothing as well. We've done nothing to earn it. It's not because of how good we are. It's not because of the good things we've done on this earth. None of that affects our salvation. It's because Christ and Christ alone came and died on the cross for your sins. It's because... The God of this universe sent his perfect son to pay the price for you. That by turning from your sins and trusting in Christ, you too can receive that gracious gift. This text should cause us to praise God for the gracious gift that he has given to him. We are to glorify him. And I think as well, it should make us realize how much greater God's gifts are than anything we can receive on this earth. Because while Mephibosheth was granted land, money, power, and got to eat at the king's table for the rest of his life, you get forgiveness of your sins and get to spend eternity at a perfect king's table, not just for your time on this earth, not just for a finite time, but you get to spend eternity with a perfect king. We need to realize that God's gifts are greater than any gift under the sun, even this good gift from David. And we see, in fact, how stunned Mephibosheth is in his response in verse 8. It says, And he paid homage to him and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? Mephibosheth knows who he is in the eyes of the king. Viewing himself as no more than a dead dog. Realizing that to King David, he has no value, is broken, useless, and in fact, an enemy to the king. He knows where he stands, and we need to realize that without Christ, that's where we are as well. 
that we are no better than what Mephibosheth says here because we've done nothing to earn it. But God so graciously gave it to us. When this verse, when you read this verse, it should cause in you, believer, a few emotions to stir. First, you should have humility. Recognizing just like Mephibosheth, to be able to look back where you came from and realize that without Christ, that this text is describing you. Because of this verse, in verse 8, we see that we have nothing to brag about. Not a single thing except for to point at our creator and say, he sent his son to die for me. I didn't earn it. Just like Mephibosheth, we should have humility. Secondly, it should cause you to be excited when thinking about spending eternity with Christ. You should feel overwhelmed with excitement and gratefulness for heaven. That you get to spend eternity sitting at the king's table. For Mephibosheth, this is something that was unheard of. An enemy getting to eat with the king for the rest of his life? This was something that even high-ranking officials didn't get. This was rare. Mephibosheth is stunned. He didn't deserve it, and neither do we. It's because of the sacrifice of another person. Our debt is paid, and you will get to spend eternity with the king at his table because of what Christ has done for you. You will get to spend eternity at the king's table. There is a spot for you today if you are a Christian who's turned from your sins and trusted in Christ because Jesus' death and resurrection has paid that price. Even though you didn't deserve it, even though you didn't earn it, that spot is there for you. We need to rejoice today because of that. That this text points us, even though it's in the Old Testament, this text points us to Christ's love, like a lot of the Old Testament does. It points us to Christ's grace. And we see that this undeserved, unearned gift that we can receive and that David gave to Mephibosheth, in fact, is fulfilled in verse 13. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. We should feel overwhelmed with excitement because the thing that David said he was going to do to the person who was considered his enemy at that time because of the history, because of the social norms, that David said, I'm going to show him kindness and in fact does. That should cause us to be excited because of the Lord's loyal love that he has lavished upon you. He's promised eternal life because of what his son came and did. Because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, by turning from our sins and trusting in Christ, that same loyal love can be lavished on us. That he graciously sent his son to die so that you can spend eternity at the table. I want you to leave today feeling overwhelmed by God's loyal love. But I also want you to be thinking of the people around you that don't have that said love, that loyal loving kindness in their life. Because there are Mephibosheths around you right now, whether it's at your house, whether it's at your neighborhood, whether it's some of the friends that you know from college, whether it's the people in the Treasure Valley that you've bumped into while getting coffee, or whatever you do throughout your week. There are Mephibosheths around you who right now don't know the loyal love the gracious gift of eternal life that can be offered to them today. Reading about God's grace should motivate us to tell other people about God's grace. Because if you think back to before you became a Christian, you felt that same thing that many people are feeling today in this valley, 
without hope, without a savior, trying to figure out life on their own and realizing that it doesn't work. That no matter how much money they make, no matter how many family members they have, no matter how much fun they have in this life, there's still an empty hole there that is Christ's love. There are Mephibosheths all around you who are limping to their death because they think that this world is all that it has to offer, that there is nothing after this. And you and I need to be motivated to go find those people and say, no, there is a loyal king who's better than any person that you've ever met on this earth, who sent his son who was perfect to die for you so that you can spend eternity at the king's table. We need to tell the people of this valley about that and how, how they can have a seat at the table as well. There are Mephibosheths all around you. We need to go talk to them. We need to go find them. We need to have enough loyal love like the love that David had, which we see in this text. Thankfully, we dug into this without just looking forward to the end because of the foreshadowing. We need to show that same loyal love to the people around us who do not have Christ. Realizing that they are just as fearful as Mephibosheth if they want to admit it or not. Realizing that they are enemies with God right now. That should motivate us because of where we once were. Because of the fact that we know that we were Mephibosheth. That we were just like that. That should motivate us to want to go tell people about the perfect king. About the perfect king who has saved a spot for you. And has saved the spot for others. We need to go tell them about our king's love. Because it is so much better than anything on this earth. So thank you so much for spending the time not looking past, not looking just to the end of this story seeing the foreshadowing at the start and not tuning me out. Because I think there's a lot we can learn from Mephibosheth and from David. These are finite characters who lived a finite amount of time on this earth. We're sinful men. But still, we see the grace of God and the gift of eternal life pictured in this text. So we absolutely, Compass Bible Church, need to go and tell other people about that same loyal love today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your perfect word. We thank you for the great reminder that we have of the good news of the gospel in this text. We thank you so much that we can glorify you today, God, knowing that you sent your son to die for our sins, even though we are like Mephibosheth, not deserving of your grace, not deserving of all the gracious gifts that you have lavished upon us. God, I pray that you would give us humility, but excitement as well that we would never be haughty or prideful, but would be excited to one day get to sit at your table forever where there is no pain or death and be motivated now to tell other people. God, I pray that we would be like David, treating our word as binding, God, learning from that, that you would convict our hearts in the situations where we seek to not uphold our word as truth and as binding, God, and convict us to follow through on the small things and the big things. God, we thank you so much for your word, so much for your gospel, so much for your grace. And we pray now that we would go and tell other people about it. We thank you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.